Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Texas Real Estate Research Center at Texas A&M University. I'm Haley Reeder Wiley, Communications Coordinator. Today is Wednesday, November 9th, 2022. On this day in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Higher Education Act of 1965 as part of his Great Society domestic agenda. Johnson chose his alma mater, Texas State University, then called Southwest Texas State College in San Marcos as the signing site. The law was intended to strengthen the educational resources of U.S. colleges and universities and to provide financial assistance for students in post-secondary and higher education. This increased federal money given to universities, created scholarships, gave low-interest loans for students, and established a national teacher corps. Now on to today's podcast. Please note that nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. For advice or representation on specific matters, consult an attorney. For all of human history, water has naturally served as a boundary for land. Texas and Mexico once disputed the area between the Rio Grande and the Nueces River, with the Rio Grande finally winning out. The Mississippi River forms part of the borders of 10 states. However, rivers and ocean shorelines move, whether gradually over time or abruptly. How are property rights in real estate affected by these changes? Texas Real Estate Research Center research attorney Rusty Adams joins us to share his insights. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Haley. How do moving water boundaries affect mineral rights? Well, that's an important question, and I'm glad you asked it first. Mineral rights are tied to the land, and until the mineral estate is severed from the surface estate, the two go hand in hand. Whoever owns the land owns the minerals. Once the minerals are legally separated from the surface, there's a chain of title for the surface and a chain of title for the minerals. And minerals are often held in undivided interests, but even when they are, where they are and how much is owned by particular persons are defined by the property lines on the surface. This affects how much the mineral owner owns, how mineral properties are pooled, and what they get paid in terms of bonus, royalties, etc. Water boundaries can be hard to define, both legally and practically. And in a lot of situations, the exact location of the boundaries may not be that important. For example, in some of these cases we're talking about, we're talking about huge mud flats. They're important to marine life, but they're not very useful to the owner. You can't graze them, you can't farm them, you can't build on them. You might not be able to even walk on them. They're essentially wastelands. Nobody particularly cared about the exact location of the boundaries for a couple hundred years, but once minerals come into play, it matters. Because of the nature of mineral rights, it can be very important to know exactly how much of the land and the minerals is owned by one person or another. And what we see is that in many cases, the only reason we end up at the courthouse fighting over the boundaries is because it affects the ownership of the minerals. Now, that's not always true. Sometimes if the change is big enough and the land is actually useful, it becomes important enough that we might end up in a dispute over the surface itself. In any case, boundaries that are defined by the edge of the water are complicated by the fact that the water is not always in the same place. 
the height of the water changes and sometimes the course the water takes changes. So this has the potential to cause two problems. First, where is the boundary located? Second, what happens when the water moves? Does it change the boundary or not? Why is the distinction of navigable versus non-navigable waters important in determining boundaries? In other words, what is the legal distinction between the two? When it comes to actual ownership of the land, the biggest reason is that the beds of navigable streams are usually owned by the state. This has been the law and policy of Texas from the days of the Republic before joining the United States. I say usually because of what's called the small bill. Because the state owns navigable streams, survey lines are not supposed to cross the beds of those navigable streams. But in some surveys, the lines did cross them. And the landowners claimed ownership of the stream bed where the lines crossed the stream. And one of the main reasons anyone cared is that whoever owns the stream bed owns the minerals. Now, the state had already granted the land based on those erroneous surveys. So in 1929, the legislature passed the Small Bill, and it's named after the state senator who introduced it. The state relinquished title to the stream beds in those particular land grants. And when the state relinquished title to the stream beds, it relinquished title to the minerals also. As a side note, the state did retain the rights to the sand and gravel in the stream bed, even for Small Bill streams. So there are some places where the landowner owns the bed of a navigable stream and the minerals underneath, but for the most part, the state owns them. Keep in mind that if the stream is navigable, there's also a right of the public to use the stream. They can use it for navigation to go up and down the stream and also for recreational purposes such as fishing and canoeing as long as they don't illegally cross private property to get there. This is true even for small bill streams. If a stream is not navigable, then the boundaries can cross the streams and the landowner can own the bed of the stream. Of course, it's pretty common for a creek to actually be the boundary. And if a non-navigable stream is the boundary, then the adjoining landowners own the creek bed rather than the state. If the call in the deed is to a non-navigable stream, the boundary is the center, or sometimes we call it the thread of the stream, unless the deed says something different. Sometimes a deed will describe a meander line, but unless the deed shows that the parties intended that meander line to be the boundary, the thread of the stream is a boundary. Now, as far as your second question, how do we know if a river or creek is navigable? There are two ways for a waterway to be navigable under the law. One is that it may be navigable in fact. Generally, it's navigable in fact if it is capable of being used in commerce. Now, if you're looking for a specific rule, if A, B, and C, then it's navigable, you'll be looking for a while. Lawyers like to call a rule like that a bright line rule, and there's not one. Courts will look at the facts and decide. Now, what do they look at? They look at these types of questions. Can it be used for customary modes of trade and travel? Is it passable by boat? Can you float a raft on it? Can it be used to float logs or other goods? These type of things. It does not have to be usable all year, but the court has said, behind all definitions of navigable waters lies the idea of public utility. So that's what the courts will examine. 
And navigability, in fact, is one way that waters can be legally deemed navigable waters. The other way is that it can be navigable by statute. A stream is navigable by statute if it retains an average width of 30 feet from the mouth up. That seems straightforward enough until you actually start making the calculations. How many data points do you look at? How far apart? Where do you start? Obviously the mouth, which may be far away. How far up the stream? Where exactly are these data points collected? Those are questions that will be answered as the court looks at the actual facts and the measurements that are made by surveyors. In general terms, the average distance is measured between the fast land banks, which separate the stream bed from the adjacent upland and confine the waters to a definite channel. So fast in the sense of permanent banks. It is not measured at any actual or average water level. It's also not measured from the gradient boundary, which is the boundary between public and private ownership of a navigable stream. Now, the water itself does not have to be 30 feet wide, and segments of the stream may be narrower as long as the average width of the channel is at least 30 feet from the mouth up. The stream does not have to be passable by any type of watercraft or any type of product. And it doesn't even have to contain water at all times. A dry creek bed may still be part of a navigable waterway. If it meets the criteria for either navigable in fact or navigable by statute, it's navigable. It does not have to meet the criteria for both. Under what circumstances would boundaries of riparian tracks or tracks that are bounded by a river change? The main question we're going to ask here is whether the change is gradual or sudden. First, let's talk about gradual changes. Erosion happens when the stream gradually and imperceptibly wears away the land. Accretion happens when solid materials, such as mud or sand, is gradually and imperceptibly deposited, adding to the land. When the land is worn away by erosion, a riparian owner loses that land. When the land is added to by accretion, a riparian owner gains that land. Reliction occurs when the water permanently subsides, permanently uncovering previously submerged land. And we're not talking about the rise and fall of the water level due to a rain event. We're talking about when the water permanently moves. In that event, the riparian owner gains the newly exposed land. So the boundary moves with the body of water. So again, the general rule is that when a boundary is a bottle of water and it is gradually and imperceptibly changed or shifted by accretion, reliction, or erosion, the boundary moves with the body of water. The test here is whether the change happens so gradually that you can't actually see it happening. If it happens all at once in an observable event, that's called avulsion or an avulsive change. And as we'll see, the rule is different. Now, some exceptions. If a person actually goes out and builds up the land to where it's dry land, he doesn't gain ownership of the new dry land that he created. It's called the landfill rule. The boundary stays the same. On the other hand, if there's a man-made dam upstream, 
and the change in water flow results in erosion or accretion downstream, the boundary still moves. Another thing to think about is this. These rules apply when the stream itself is the boundary. What if the description in the deed makes a call to an object at the bank of the stream? For instance, thence such and such heading and distance to a monument placed at the bank of the Colorado River. In that case, the object is the boundary. When the stream moves, the boundary does not, because the stream is not the boundary, the object is. I mentioned avulsion when the change happens suddenly. In that case, the boundary does not move. Now, there's an exception to this rule as well. If a navigable stream leaves its bed and cuts a new bed, the boundaries are not otherwise changed, but the new bed is owned by the state. Let me give you an example. Smith owns land on one side of the Brazos along a big turn in the river. Jones owns the land on the other side, including, I don't know how to describe it, the part that juts into the curve. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. When the Brazos wears away the bank and eventually the land gives way, there's an evulsive event where the river breaks through all at once and cuts a new bed. That leaves the old riverbed as an oxbow lake or what in the valley we would call a rasaka. And so in that situation, Smith still owns the same land. The land that juts into the curve does not become Smith's. It still belongs to Jones, even though now it's essentially an island on the other side of the river from the rest of Jones's land. The new riverbed, though, is no longer owned by Jones. It's owned by the state because it's a navigable river. One more thing. If the land actually sinks vertically, that's called subsidence. That doesn't change the boundaries at all, even if the land sinks below the surface of the water. And in that situation, it doesn't matter if the change is gradual or sudden. When would boundaries change for littoral tracts or land bounded by the shore of an ocean, sea, or a lake? Okay, well first, since this is an, an audio, let me clarify that it's pronounced literal, but we're talking about something different from what people usually mean when they say literal. Literal, and it's, the spelling is, is littoral, uh, means property bounded by the sea. In property abutting the Gulf of Mexico, typically the literal owner owns to the shoreline, and land seaward of the shoreline is covered by navigable waters and owned by the state of Texas. We'll touch on exactly where the shoreline is in a minute, but the general rules are somewhat similar to what we've already discussed. If the shoreline gradually moves, the ownership moves. If the shoreline moves inward, the literal owner loses that land. If the shoreline moves seaward, the literal owner's property grows. However, the burden to show the property has accreted is on the property owner. The presumption is that the state retains title to the newly exposed land unless the owner presents evidence that there's been accretion on the shoreline. As with accretion on riparian tracts, the landfill rule applies. The owner may not intentionally build up the land and then claim the dry land. And something else that's the same is that when the surface of the land sinks vertically, even underneath the surface of the water, the boundaries remain unchanged. That's subsidence. As for evulsive changes to the shoreline, we really don't know. It appears likely that the same rules would apply to evulsive changes to literal boundaries as to riparian ones. That is, the boundaries would not change. 
That's based on part of the opinion in Severance versus Patterson. Now, that case was about whether Texas recognizes a rolling beachfront easement. It wasn't about title to the beach. So that particular portion is what lawyers call dicta. It's not the law, but it may be an indication of how the court might rule in such a case. On the other hand, in that opinion, the Texas Supreme Court specifically left that question open. Now, where is the boundary when the boundary is the shoreline? That depends on what the original grant says and when it was made. Land grants are interpreted based on the law in effect at the time the grant was made. And some of these grants go back to the days before Texas independence. So we may be looking at civil law grants based on Spanish or Mexican law. Then there are grants governed by Texas law before Texas adopted the common law. And there are grants governed by Texas law after Texas adopted the common law. For common law grants, the shoreline boundary is the line of mean high tide. For civil law grants, the shoreline boundary is the line of mean higher high tide. Both of these are calculated lines based on readings from tide gauges in the Gulf over an 18.6 year astronomical cycle. How that's calculated depends on the law that applies to the land grant. For part of the month, when you have a new moon or a full moon, there's one high tide per day. For other parts of the month, when you have quarter moons, there are two high tides per day. If we're dealing with a common law grant, the line is the line of mean high tide, which is based on the mean of all of the high tide readings. For civil law grants, the line is the line of mean higher high tide, which is based on the mean of all the higher high tide readings. That is, if there are two high tides, we're only going to include the higher of the two in our calculation. Whereas for mean high tide, for a common law grant, you include all of the high tides in that calculation. The Open Beaches Act enforces the rights of the public to access and use Texas Gulf beaches, even where they were privately owned. Under what circumstances, if any, could a landowner prevent access to their Gulf-bounded land? Okay, let's talk about a few lines in the sand, so to speak. A very Texas thing to talk about. First, there's the line of mean low tide. Seaward of that line, it's pretty much always underwater. So, of course, submerged land is owned by the state, unless the state has granted it to someone, which is rare. Then there's the line of mean high tide, or for civil law grants, the line of mean higher high tide. The area between the line of mean high tide and the line of mean low tide is covered and uncovered daily with the tides. So that's commonly referred to as the wet beach. The state owns the wet beach. So the state owns the submerged land and the wet beach. Above the line of mean high tide is the dry beach, which would include the sand, the dunes, whatever, up to the line of vegetation. That's owned by the landowner. And of course, from the vegetation line landward is owned by the landowner too. Now, the state owns the submerged land and the wet beach and the public has the right to be on and in the water and on the wet beach. The question, of course, is how can they get there? Do they have to come by boat? The state of Texas has declared that public policy is that the public has free and unrestricted right of ingress and egress to and from those state-owned beaches and water. But they can't necessarily cross private property to get there. 
the legislature can't just declare that the public has the right to cross or be on private property. It's not constitutional. But as a practical matter, they kind of did when they passed the Open Beaches Act, which is found in Chapter 61 of the Natural Resources Code. Now, here's how they did it and how they tried to work around that problem. And actually, at least part of this act is being challenged right now. What the Open Beaches Act did is it essentially said, if the public has acquired a right of use or easement to or over an area by prescription, dedication, or has retained a right by virtue of continuous right in the public, then the public has the free and unrestricted right of ingress and egress to the entire beach, including the privately owned dry beach, and that's up to the line of vegetation. Section 61013 specifically excludes a beach that is not accessible by a public road or public ferry as provided in Section 61021. That section, though, makes the law inapplicable to beaches on islands or peninsulas that are not accessible by a public road or ferry. So it's kind of vague whether it applies to beaches on the mainland that are not accessible by a public road. The Open Beaches Act does a lot of things, but we'll just touch on a couple of them. First, it prohibits a private landowner from erecting a sign, marker, or warning that the beach is private property or that the public does not have a right of access. It also gives the land commissioner power to enjoin or remove encroachments on the public beach, such as fences. It also requires landowners to submit development plans for proposed construction. Additionally, if the line of vegetation is moved by an evulsive event, such as a hurricane, the land commissioner may suspend action on determining a new line of vegetation for up to three years. And during that time, the public beach extends 200 feet inland from the line of mean low tide. That's actually the part that's currently subject to a constitutional challenge. So, the act is carefully crafted so that it only applies to lands where the public has already acquired an easement or right of access. But it also says there's a presumption that the public has such a right. And so that presumption, which shifts the burden of proof to the landowner, may be a problem in a constitutional challenge, and that's in addition to the challenge that's already currently being pursued. Now, regardless, if the public can actually legally get to the beach, either from the water or from other public beach or from some public access that they legally have, such as a public road, then that access includes the right to use the whole beach, including the privately owned dry beach. Now, what about Severance versus Patterson? It had been said that the public's easement over the beach, if and where it existed, was a rolling easement that rolled in and out when the gulf moved in and out. What the severance case said was that if the public has acquired an easement, and if there is a sudden evulsive change that moves the vegetation line landward, the easement does not roll landward with it to cover more of the private land. Rather than the easement moving to further encumber the privately owned land, the public can lose the easement. So. Texas does not recognize a rolling easement. How would one determine who owns the water? The state owns the water. The gulf, the bay, any navigable or non-navigable stream, that's all owned by the state. We're talking about the water here. Even if the landowner owns the stream bed, the water belongs to the state. 
In fact, any water that falls on the property, once it enters a water course, is owned by the state. If it's in a water course, whether navigable or not, it's owned by the state. Groundwater and diffuse surface water are owned by the landowner. But once it enters into a defined water course with a defined bed and banks, the state owns it. But I think you're asking about the water that's on the beach or in the creek, and that's all state water. The landowner may and probably does have a right to use the water, but he doesn't own it. Well, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Haley. Thanks again, Rusty. For more, check out Rusty's two articles on the topic. Moving Water, Boundary Changes and Property Rights provides an overview of how property rights change as boundaries move. Title Highs and Laws, Coastal Property Rights, discusses property rights along the Gulf. The links to both of these articles are on the podcast webpage and in the YouTube description box. Please note that nothing in these articles should be considered legal advice. For advice or representation on specific matters, consult an attorney. While you're on our website, check out our research library. It includes a wide variety of research reports and articles. Latest topics include affordability outlooks for Texas and its four major metros, prop tech in Texas, land market developments, carbon credits for landowners, and more. The link is on our podcast webpage. That's going to be it for today's podcast. If you're looking for more from the Texas Real Estate Research Center, head to our website. That's www.recenter.tamu.edu. There, you'll find the latest data, research articles, news, and more. For more Texas real estate news, subscribe to Recon, our bi-weekly newsletter. You'll get all the biggest stories sent straight to your inbox every Tuesday and Friday. The link is down below. To stay up to date on when articles are published on our website, follow the Texas Real Estate Research Center on social media. You can find us with the handle at RECenterTX on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. For more podcasts like these, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or to our YouTube channel. All podcasts are also available for free on our website. Thanks for joining us today in the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Texas Real Estate Research Center in College Station, Texas, where we've been helping Texans make the best real estate decisions since 1971. This is Haley Reeder-Wiley, and I'll see you next time. Bye.